From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, May 14th. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention made some big announcements this week, one of which opened the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine to people 12 years of age and up. We spoke to local health officer Braden Bradford on vaccinating this population here in southeast Utah. Well, thank you for being with me here again, Brady. You know, we talked just last week and you mentioned then that the Pfizer vaccine was expected to get approved for the 12 to 15 year old population. Now that that's happened, um, what does that mean for our local community um, and our vaccine resources? Um, So we, for the very first time this week, we got Pfizer allocated to us. And so We will spread that out amongst the three offices. We actually have plenty. I'm not worried at all about availability. It is tricky to deal with because uh, you you keep it in that ultra cold storage and then you only have five days to use it once it comes out of storage. So we anticipate a little bit of a rush on that demand right in the next week to two weeks as, as parents bring their children in. Again, we have plenty for for what we need but uh, it will be some logistical adjustments for us uh, just just figuring out how to get it the right place at the right time and is the southeast utah health department um, still wanting people to sign up for appointments will there be walk-in clinics available or are you are you figuring this out as you go along we we love and encourage people to sign up just because it helps us anticipate numbers particularly for the 12 to 15 year olds it, it will be great but but we take anybody that shows up. Walk-ins accepted, uh, call-ins. If if you have an older, you know, we still have a few older individuals or people that can't get out of a car. We'll, we'll accommodate that in, in the car. So we'll do whatever we can to, to get a shot into someone that wants it. Will there be any partnership with the schools across the three counties? Yes, actually, um, we, we did a Pfizer clinic in partnership with Nomi Health uh, for the 16 and 17-year-olds. When we didn't have any access to that, uh, but now that we do, today we're working with all three school districts to set up clinics for next week for that 12 to 15 age group. Again, any it doesn't have to just be 12 to 15 year olds. We will target them because they haven't had access to it. But anybody that's been waiting for Pfizer and wants Pfizer, we will be able to give it to them. So people can keep checking the Southeast Utah Health Department website for uh, vaccine clinic and appointment information. Yes, and we'll we'll push that out the best we can, and, and it will it will be on our website as well. So the state sent out um, some information, you know, announcing that anybody 12 years old and up can now get the Pfizer vaccine, and they included some information about how there's a misconception going around that kids can't really be affected by COVID, and I know that's absolutely not true. Um, can you can you speak to that? Yeah, I was actually reading a a report today that said more kids have been hospitalized in Utah from COVID this year than have been hospitalized from influenza in the past five years. That number is in about the mid 400s. I think 462-ish that are five to 18-year-olds have been hospitalized from COVID. Okay. And some and some number of those will experience long-term effects, uh, just like adults. Some number of adults have as well. Now, certainly on a you know on a big scale, they have been less impacted than the, the older adults. But 
when you consider, you know, this is affecting kids at about five times the rate of flu, that helps gain a little perspective that this is not an inconsequential thing for them. And we, we still need to be aware of their symptoms, aware of who they're around and, and be paying attention if they start to, to exhibit symptoms and, and get them the care they need if necessary. But certainly the ability to vaccinate and prevent that disease is, is ideal and what we've been waiting for for you know a year now. Yeah, I mean, even last week you were talking about vaccines um, and our eligible population. And as of this week, our eligible population has increased um, because it's gone all the way down to 12-year-olds. Yeah, it's just, so if you've been tracking our website at all, we were at about uh, 55% of Grand County eligible people were fully vaccinated. And adding this group of 12 to 15-year-olds uh, drops that down to, to about 50%. So, you know, that increases by about 5% the, the number of eligible people in the county. Again, we're still missing uh, another almost 2,000 people in the zero to 12-year-old age group. So for those that are eligible, the more that become vaccinated, that really contributes to the overall community health. Now, I was an early vaccine adopter. I was uh, the person who uh, was so excited to get it, got it as soon as I could, as soon as I was made eligible. And it's interesting because I think I'm now encountering more and more people in the community who say, oh, you know, I'm just waiting to get it or, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, see what happens. And, you know, maybe they're not the population that will never get the vaccine, but they are still for some reason on the fence about it. You know, can you can you recommend any resources that will help make people comfortable with the vaccine? I mean, this is this is the only pathway out of this extended nightmare. I mean, the coronavirus is still uh, raging, especially around the world, and we are just so privileged to have this vaccine available for it to be free. You know, as someone who has been subjected to all of the news reports and uh, details on hospitalizations and death and dying over the last year, I just, I feel so grateful to be fully vaccinated now. And I just want that for everybody in our community. Um, getting off my soapbox, getting off my um, public health soapbox now. Um, my original question was resources. You know, what resources uh, would you recommend, Brady, uh, for people who have yet to get vaccinated? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I would generally avoid taking everything you see on social media at, at face value. I, I would go to, you know, a trusted healthcare professional. Uh, certainly. There is a lot of information on um, coronavirus.utah.gov on our website. We're happy to have you call in and, and talk to our epidemiologist. He's been following all of the uh, vaccine studies very closely, updates me um, a couple of times a week about what's happening. You know, they're, they're doing studies where they, they try different vaccines. They're doing studies where they mix it with the flu vaccine and testing children and testing adults. And, and uh, so she's been really up, up to date on that and is keeping her own list of uh, trusted sources that she's, she's reading from. But certainly I recognize that not everyone's comfortable just getting their information from, from the, uh, the health department. So if you continue to look for information, looking at 
what the CDC uh, puts out or, or the World Health Organization. Again, on that, that kind of more personal level, I, I'd certainly go to your, ask your doctor. Brady, is there anything else that you wanted to mention? I know last week, Grand County had a pretty good vaccination rate, but our COVID-19 transmission rate continued uh, to increase, especially among the unvaccinated population. Um, are, we, are we still kind of in that situation? Um, it does appear that it's getting a little bit better. The numbers are starting to, to drop, or at least our daily numbers. It, it's still pretty significant, but a little bit less than last week, which is a good trend. These are cases that are coming from indoor activities. We've had a, a few at some kind of large social events that that's led to quite a few cases. Mm-hmm. Um, on the same token, on kind of the bright side of things, um, you might, may have seen just just recently, the CDC did make a statement. If you've been fully vaccinated, you, you can do what you've always done that you put off for the last year. Indoors, outdoors, masks and social distancing aren't, aren't required. And so that's still the message here that there, there's this great uh, pathway that we're grateful to have that is safe. Continue to research if you need to research to feel comfortable. But, you know, I'm, I'm super confident and what we've seen in our community that we've started to see a benefit. I know Grand County is kind of in this mix of we've had a lot of tourism and that's also brought some disease to the community, but the future is still bright for Grand County in terms of getting out of the COVID pandemic. And and we'll link to um, the latest information from the CDC in, in today's news. Like you said, there's now different guidance for vaccinated people versus unvaccinated people. Another fact-based, science-based case for getting that vaccine. It certainly sounds like we have plenty of vaccine available, so that shouldn't be a barrier for anybody. Absolutely. That that should never be an issue uh, if, for whatever reason, anybody's had a problem getting a vaccine. Call their local office. We will we will figure a way to, to get that administered. Southeast Utah Health Officer Braden Bradford. You can schedule a vaccine appointment at seuhealth.com or at citymarket.com. And like Bradford said, if you have questions, feel free to call the health department. Their Moab office is 435-259-5602. We'll have links to this information in our show notes on our website and podcast. And now, our weekly newsreel, where we speak to reporters about the latest stories they've covered in our area. A major infrastructure project that expanded Highway 191 from two lanes to five north of town is almost complete. Times Independent editor Doug McMurdo has more from their coverage, including the price tag. Paving uh, is finished up this week. There's now four courses of pavement that they've put down, so it's like eight inches thick. It's a pretty thick, uh, definitely highway grade. Um, So the work is done uh, for the most part, but there's still going to be what UDOT is describing as touch-up work that's going to require lane closures um, Monday through Friday. But everything else on the weekends, you know, when traffic is at its thickest, uh, will be open to all five lanes. So and I think that that's already, I think people already know that that's going to make a, a huge improvement in uh, congestion. So uh, we got a couple of um, pretty cool photos. Uh, one of the things that uh, reporter Sophia Fisher uncovered was the uh, 
the cost skyrocketed. Originally, it was pegged at $20.2 million. We uh, did some research uh, back in January of 2020. UDOT added uh, $5 million to the project. And the other $5 million, roughly $5 million, um, that has gone into it, according to Chuck Williams, who made it clear he was just ballparking things for me, but he said that UDOT had to spend uh, more money than it anticipated uh, acquiring rights-of-way. They ran into a lot more rock than they thought they would, which requires uh, more extensive and more expensive methods of um, doing road work. They also ran into utility issues where they had to go around or under or over. So there was all kinds of um, issues that added to it. But still, I think for $31 million uh, in today's money, uh, that's a pretty good deal. And another reason for the high cost was uh, uh, COVID-19 and disrupted supply chains. Uh, uh, Anybody who's had to uh, buy building materials in the last few months knows that they're going way up. So... Yeah, it wasn't uh, cost overruns. It wasn't errors or anything like that. It was just um, the normal course of business uh, during during a pandemic year. Okay, and to make sure that I understood, and forgive me if you said this already, but it was estimated at the outset to be around twenty million dollars, and it's now thirty-one million dollars. That's the final cost. Yes. Okay, and does that mean that the city's portion had to increase at all, or was that the same? No. Okay. No. The city's the city's two million ninety-five thousand. They don't they don't have to spend anymore. So that's okay. good. So that that extra cost was just on uh, the Utah Department of Transportation. Right. I should also point out the road will be fully open with no more work um, by July 4th at the latest. Well, thanks, Doug. Thanks for breaking that down for us. That was such a huge project. So glad to see we can read about it in the Times Independent. And where do you want to take us next? Uh, Let's talk about Mother's Day, specifically uh, three mothers and a daughter from the uh, uh, the Navajo and Hopi and the Jimmel tribes came to Moab on Sunday morning to, uh, they came from all over the Southwest to uh, pray over Birthing Rock, you know, which was uh, defaced, the petroglyph site that was uh, defaced recently off of Cane Creek. Reporter Carter Poppy did a very good job interviewing uh, Davina Smith, Regina Lopez Whiteskunk, uh, Johnny Yipa, and Tara Benali, uh, who were in town. They, uh, they were pretty reverent and uh, reverential on, on their whole approach to praying over it. And they were praying for the uh, the person who did the defacing. And I think um, more than, than anything, they uh, really enjoyed the ability to get together and socialize and be in each other's company for the first time in over a year because this is the the first time that they've done anything together uh, since COVID back in March of 2020. So pretty heartwarming story. What an interesting profile. And it sounds like the women were there to to pray over over the damage, right, at at the Birthing Rock panel. Yeah, over the damage and um, with a focus on you know, their focus is no different than everybody else's uh, that cares about these things, and that's preserving it for our children and our children's children. And I, that's that's what the focus, the focus of their prayer was. And I read in the Times Independent last week that, um, you know, the BLM has put out this $10,000 reward, um, but an off-roading group also um, put some additional monies onto that reward for information, if anyone has any that would lead to the arrest and conviction of uh, the party responsible. 
That's correct. That's the Red Rock Four Wheelers. They're the sponsors of the annual uh, Easter Jeep Safari. They they did add another five thousand to that um, to that reward. That information can be uh, given anonymously, by the way. Right. Good. Good point. Where else do you want to take us next? Well, I think for a lot of people that were upset when Moab lost its uh, flights to Salt Lake City, have uh, reason to celebrate because those flights resumed last week. We've got our front page, uh, a couple of photos on the front page. Um, the Canyonlands Regional Airport uh, celebrated the inaugural flight between uh, Salt Lake and Moab when Delta landed. Uh, from Salt Lake last week, so we've got some a uh, little bit of news there, and that's good for uh, for business, and I think it's good for people who have business in the capital. They can jump on that plane and you know be home in 24 hours instead of having to go to Denver. Or mm-hmm. Andy Solzik put it, the uh, the director of the airport, they can go east or west and hit two major hubs. So that's important. You have two options: Denver or Salt Lake. It opens destinations up for locals, but also, of course, opens a lot more options for tourists coming into Moab. Uh, And finally, I know the Times Independent profiled a local nonprofit and their anniversary campaign. Can you tell us about that? We did. We uh, we asked Abby Taylor of Seacaven, the executive director of Seacaven, to uh, give us some information on their their annual fundraising drive this year. They marked their 30th anniversary uh, serving um, victims of domestic violence and sexual assault here in the southeast Utah region, and they were able to gather uh, $74,241. Uh, the Eccles Foundation was uh, the largest donor at 15000 Colin, um, oh, geez, Colin Fryer from Red Cliff Lodge <laughs> donated $10,000, and uh, somebody anonymously donated another $10,000, and then uh, there were several people that uh, donated 2500 and then 89 people with, you know, just whatever they could afford also donated. So Abby was very pleased with the outcome, and uh, she noted uh, one of the things that surprised me. 30 years ago, they started with three employees, and they uh, now have 19 on staff, so it's uh, grown along with the community. I mean, this is such an important resource for our community and also for the region. Um, and it's really neat to see that Seacaven not only made their anniversary campaign but exceeded it. It's always really, really nice to see that, you know, we value how much value uh, we have for this resource. Yeah, and it, it was important that we supported this because, you know, like, like everybody else, they were unable to hold their annual fundraiser, the putting on the Ritz. They weren't able to do that because of COVID, so this was a, a pretty good rescue i think well thank you doug is there anything else you wanted to mention Uh, i think i'm all talked out (laughs) (laughs) doug mcmurdo editor of the times independent subscription information and more coverage can be found at moabtimes.com Seekhaven's 30-year anniversary is highlighting just how important the organization has become in our community not only serving as a domestic violence shelter but through their various advocacy and outreach programs the Moab Sun News profiled the organization this week, too, and reporter Anastasia Huffham has more. So I had the chance to chat with Abigail Taylor, who is Seacaven's executive director, and such 
such an incredible advocate for the community, really. Um, and it's really awesome that we have a place like Sea Haven in a rural community like Moab, where just like everywhere else in the world, there is sexual assault, there is domestic violence, um, there are you know instances of harassment and abuse in outdoor communities like the climbing and mountain biking communities. There is, of course, like anywhere else in the world, um, people at home have issues, and it's a great. We're really lucky to have Sea Haven there to really believe survivors of that abuse and help them justice and whatever that means for them. Um, and so Abigail talked a lot about how Haven really is client-led. You know, if you have experienced some horrible abuse, um, you can go in there and maybe you want to pursue um, action through law enforcement. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just want to really spend the night and, you know, get a little bit of, like, a refuge. And I think it's really awesome that all of their services are free, they're confidential, they're so accessible. And their team is really star-studded and so dedicated to helping Moab. And especially during the pandemic where across the nation domestic abuse cases rose um, due to, you know, unemployment, due to being stuck in the same four walls for, you know, forever. In in Moab, she said that, like, there there was a staggering 500% increase in victims who passed the high-risk lethality assessment, which means, which is when um, first responders like Sea Haven and other, um, like, law enforcement ask victims these 11 questions, you know, among them are, has your partner ever threatened you? Has your partner ever threatened you with a weapon? Does your partner have access to a weapon? And if you answer yes to enough of those questions, you are in a high risk of death, lethality. So, um, so I think it's just really amazing to see how much of an increase there was in hotline calls to see Caven during the pandemic from like July to September, an increase in shelter, people who came into the shelter to stay a night or two. Um, it is really staggering. So I think we, you know, um, I think it's really awesome to support CK then donate whatever you can to them. Maybe a portion of your Amazon purchase or um, mm. some steady market grocery money. Um, it's just really, really wonderful work that they do. They've really done a lot to protect our community during the pandemic. And I really look forward to... Um, I'm going to be writing kind of a series of articles about the Haven um, to kind of celebrate their 30th. And because there's truly so much that that organization does, that one article could certainly not do them justice. So I'm looking forward to speaking with some other um, Sea Haven advocates and former employees, current employees, et cetera, um, to really flesh out you know, a picture for the community of what um, Sea Haven does. This is, you know, this is quite a long piece in the Mobs and News, um, but like you're saying, you're planning on doing some more articles. You know, they really do a lot in our community. And, you know, there's 19 employees at Sea Haven, and, you know, they all focus on different um, aspects of combating domestic violence and sexual assault. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, I'm, I'm excited to talk to um, some former executive directors as well, because Sea Haven started out in 1990 as just a shelter for those who didn't have a home or place to stay. Now they've really fleshed out so much of their programming and outreach. Like now they do, you know, they did sexual education at uh, the high school, you know, to teach kids, you know, what is it, what does a healthy relationship look like? What is consent? And like those really complicated things that, you know, I at 20 years old am still trying to figure out and understand in my own life. Um, and they have gone down to San Juan County and um, confronted sexual abuse within um, indigenous communities there. They really just expanded their outreach and they're really trying to administer as many programs to community as possible to kind of give people, you know, Abby, um, Abigail called it first responder training, you know, like first responders aren't always people who show up with your ambulance. For a lot of people, the first person they tell about domestic abuse or sexual assault is a close friend or family member or employer, somebody like that, and we can all kind of 
educate ourselves a little bit to know like what to say to say that you know I believe you what can I do to help here's some mm-hmm. resources I've heard of um, and I just it's really it's really wonderful and I'm, I'm excited to kind of flush out more um, in writing how CK they've really expanded their programming and like you said have 19 employees which is no small number at all and I think they really can serve as a model for other rural communities. Now if I could transition to one more article that you wrote in this edition of the Mobs and News it's about a scooter company that people might know about um, especially if they've visited or lived in larger cities. Can you tell us what's going on with Bird Scooters and uh, Moab City? Yeah, it's really um, such a funny thing. I was actually, before the pandemic hit um, in 2019, I was in Paris with my family, and they had Bird Scooters, and I'd never heard of them before. Of course, my two younger brothers were all over, and I thought it was the most cool thing that they could <laughs> you know, download this app and hop on the scooter and ride around you know, past the Eiffel Tower and then kind of put it anywhere kind of near a fence or on a sidewalk and somebody else will pick it up and do it again. So that's essentially what bird scooters are. You pay a flat fee rate, which kind of depends on each city plus a per minute charge. And they said um, that Mike Butler is the senior account executive at Bird and he gave a presentation to the New York City Council um, two weeks ago on April 27th, kind of explaining what Bird actually is. <laughs> and so essentially it's like a usually a $5 average um, charge. It's supposed to be an affordable, environmentally friendly transit alternative, um, which is really interesting, I think. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out in Moab, because a lot of the concerns the council had were revolving around the fact that our main street is a, is a highway. You know, there are 18 wheelers, there are a mm-hmm. bunch of different kinds of vehicles. Um, it's a really busy street. So um, having theaters could present a danger, especially since um, actually the Utah legislature passed Senate Bill 139 in 2019, which says that no municipality in Utah can pass unduly restrictive um, requirements on scooter share operators, meaning that Moab essentially can't ban Bird or other similar e-scooter companies from operating okay. in Moab. So now um, the council has not decided anything yet. They've really just started this conversation, but there are a few different options. They could pass an ordinance that all um, e-scooter companies, potential e-scooter companies, would have to comply with. The issue mm-hmm. with that, however, would be that the city couldn't limit the number of companies that would come in. It could be literally be any e-scooter company in the world that says, okay, I can comply with this ordinance. And then another one, they can also do a temporary operating agreement, which is more flexible, um, more specific and temporary, and they can specify some more specific you know, um, regulations for each one, um, but they can make enforcement kind of difficult. And then another possibility um, would be a request for proposal, which would be contracting essentially with each company, which would be more competitive um, and allow the city to limit the number of companies operating in town, but um, that takes a lot of infrastructure. So those mm-hmm. are the three options. The city council is still kind of, I think, fleshing that out and really going to seek a lot of community engagement on that, which I think is great. I think they're definitely looking out for some public hearings in the next couple of weeks and months for that kind of thing, because the city has decided to table that for now and um, really work on flushing it out with the community and figuring out, you know, what it would look like, would it be safe, because essentially they would be regulated the same as bicycles. So, and I guess it's the kind of thing where Moab is, Moab is the new Paris, you know. Um, it's really, <laughs> it's really, there's just so many people here, um, and which is great, of course, but also comes with some growing pains for sure. I think that every single person who lives here has felt pretty fascinating. It'll be really interesting to see how the council decides to ultimately approach it. Uh, Thank you for breaking that down for us. Um, That's funny because you're making me think of those bumper stickers that 
you'll occasionally see around that say, uh, like New York, Paris, London, Moab. I actually have one on the back of my car right now, and it made me laugh really hard because Ben Bellingsley, our finance director, actually made the same comment. He was like, oh my gosh, we are absolutely grouped in with all of these giant cities, you know? We, I mean, we basically cater to that many people. It's really wild. <laughs> Anastasia Hotham, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more coverage can be found at moabsunnews.com. That does it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters and editors about their latest local stories. We'll have links to the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.